when you go camping, you don't take, you know, everything with you. You live off the land, right? This is Space Watch Daily, a place to get insights into this second great space race. I'm David Ariosto. The more we could get commercial entities to fund and what could be profitable for them, like services, like communication services, mm-hmm. power, selling rovers, if you know we can give some of that over to them, then we can focus our money on the technologies needed to go to Mars or right. to Saturn or to Titan. That was Michelle Monk, who serves as NASA's acting chief architect for the Space Technology Mission Directorate over at headquarters, which basically means that she gets to oversee some of the fun new technologies that NASA itself is pioneering. And her work has a lot to do with Mars. Everything from heat shields to inflatable habitats to even the Mars rover itself. Um, She's just a really interesting, very insightful person to talk to and we're going to get to that interview in just a second but before we do i did want to talk a little bit about that mars rover in fact curiosity is 11 years old at this point which is just it's kind of amazing it's we, we curiosity is still plugging away after that much time and it's actually current currently making its way up a three mile high uh mountain uh which is essentially working its way through a detour in an area that had that has smaller rocks, less sand, apparently had been slipping down several times on the original route. Um, But, so this new route's gonna take a couple extra weeks, but it's it's now crested over this hilltop and it's sending back imagery. So I would actually encourage you to go to to the NASA website just to check out some of those those images. Anyway, it recently discovered some hexagonal patterns in the ground, basically mud cracks that that usually form after a series of wet and dry cycles. And it's the first time that that's ever been discovered on Mars. And it means, at least according to this recently peer-reviewed study that just published in Nature this month, uh, which, which is a scientific journal, that not only is there a greater likelihood that let life on Mars existed, but also that these patterns, get this, that these patterns may still, today, contain microscopic life forms. Now, we already know that Mars once had rivers and lakes and maybe even oceans. The thinking is is that oftentimes life forms pool in these patterns. Um, so they're, they're, this, these are conditions, or at least the, the, the remnants of conditions, that, that potentially could be hallmarks. Now, now the scientists went one step further and suggested that it is possible that these organisms, that a few of these organisms may still be there. So... Anyway, I just I just found that really fascinating as we we talk about the possibility of extraterrestrial life and also Mars itself and potential travel there. Not only when it comes to uh, SpaceX Starship, which is this enormous rocket and spacecraft that is meant to help one day colonize Mars, but also in terms of what NASA itself is doing. Remember, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said the agency's plan, and this is a direct quote now is for humans to walk on Mars by 2040, which is just crazy. Um, Just wild stuff when you think about the the possibilities and the the real, you know, the notions of of becoming 
uh, a truly multiplanetary civilization. Um, it takes, I believe, about six months to get to Mars. Um, and then the comms between the two places and how you build there and what's sustainable and what you can do in terms of in-situ resources. They're just a host of questions um, that I had. And I really wanted to chat with one of the people who are part of that effort. So I headed out to Vegas, of all places, for the annual Ascend Space Conference to catch up with Michelle Monk, who, like I said, is NASA's acting chief architect for space technology. And we started talking about what it takes, at least initially, to get there, to land there, and the heat shield, which protects the rover from that searing heat that occurs from entry into the Martian atmosphere. We have um, a multi-layer thermal protection system on the front um, that, of course, is flexible and folds up. Uh, the whole thing folds up like a parachute and is packed inside the launch vehicle. So, um, so for Earth entry, like United Launch Alliance is interested in using the HIAD to bring back their rocket stages for reuse. And so um, the Earth entry environment that they're going to experience is slightly different um, than what we're going to experience when we send the two-story house to Mars. Um, but we can tailor um, the inflation uh, pressure and the thermal protection system materials um, for each of those environments. The two-story house? <laughs> yeah, so when people go to Mars, they need a lot of stuff. Um, one of the biggest things they need is an ascent vehicle to bring them home. Sure. So, um, and our latest architectural studies have used an um, ascent vehicle that's filled with propellant and it's all ready to go. Yeah. So um, that lowers the risk of getting the astronauts back safely. So um, that's kind of the smallest indivisible piece or biggest indivisible piece um, that we need to send. Mm -hmm. And it's about 20 metric tons, about 20 times what we've sent so far, because the rover uh, Curiosity and Perseverance are about one metric ton. Sure. And then um, it's about, you know, a couple stories tall and its footprint is about, you know, 15, 20 meters by 15 to 20 meters. Well, it's yeah. got to fit in the launch vehicle, so it's got about an eight meter round footprint. Got it. But um, yeah, it's pretty tall and it's pretty heavy. So, you know, w w between the inflatable heat shield and inflatable habitats on, on places like the moon and Mars, is that, is, is, are the world of inflatables sort of, you know, where a lot of the, the future is directing us, at least in terms of initial steps in some of these you know, extraterrestrial type type it's environments. A, it's a really promising technology um, because you can, you know, get a large volume. It's been studied for years, you know, inflatable transit habitats and, um, you know, the Bigelow and, um, yeah, surface habitats um, as well. So the, the, the thing that comes to mind, obviously, is that when you talk about space debris or these tiny little micrometeorites, yep. I mean, it, if they hit a Yep. A structure that has been 3D printed or something like you imagine like if even if a puncture was a mm -hmm. hole it might be easier to plug but mm -hmm. with an inflatable yes it is a concern um, but you know it's a concern when a piece of debris hits our space station that's made of metal so right. um, in this case you know there are design features that you can put in the inflatables uh, to make them more micrometeoroid uh, resistant okay. one of them is like a, a thick foam um, that attenuates that you incoming particle. Um, no, it's actually a layer that's built in. It, okay. You know, uh, think of your uh, mattresses that you get now, right? <clears throat> you buy them and they're memory shipped foam, to your yeah. yep memory foam. You know, 
um, it's not exactly memory foam, but it's something that can be pretty small and yeah. then expand. And just that distance and the density of that foam can um, protect you against yeah. a, a micrometeoroid impact. So how, how far are we away from, from doing this? I mean, I know we've been talking, so I saw the session earlier, said, you know, there, we have hardware in the, in the works all the way up to Artemis 5. But mm -hmm. I mean, what realistically are, are, are we looking at in terms of not only missions, but sustainable presence place like Mars so I think um, you know sustainable means that we really have a, a robust proven out uh, in-situ resource utilization technology yeah. so able to and on Mars it's actually easier just because you have carbon dioxide atmosphere that you can use so um, you just filter the dust out of it and um, you do a body a process and you get your your oxygen and you're good yeah um, take some hydrogen with you and you got rocket fuel or you know use your oxygen for breathing um, and so, you know, the presence of an atmosphere in that case really helps us. Um, but on the moon, we'll learn how to, you know, mine water, use regolith. Um, and so I think ISRU is one of the key um, foundations, you know, when you go camping, you don't take, you know, everything with you. You yeah. live off the land, right? You use firewood and you get yeah. water there. And so kind of the same principle. Um, some technologies are more ready than others and it kind of depends on what your ground rules are you know if you say you go, need to go really really fast well you need a propulsion system that probably doesn't exist yet so that's going to take a while to develop when you you talk about in, in situ development and you mentioned water in that is, mm -hmm. is the purpose of water ultimately for for, for drinking or, or is it is it other sort of other forms like it potential could be. use in, in, in fuel in, in terms of like cleaving the, the, the molecules. Yep, absolutely. All the above. So we'll we'll do everything with it that we can once we have it. Is that is that in tandem with I mean if you have if you have hydrogen and you have oxygen, is is the creation of water through chemical processes something that's being considered up there? Um I'm not sure specifically, um, you know, but studies that look at um, atmospheric ISRU at Mars rely on you taking some hydrogen with you and then getting yeah. the oxygen from the carbon dioxide. Right. So um, but that's a, that would be like a hydrogen-oxygen propulsion system. So yeah. you'd store it and liquefy it and, and all that. Right. Um, so yeah, different, you know, depending on the application, um, we can, you know, manipulate the chemistry however we need to for, for useful products. Right. Now, one thing I, I, I kind of wanted to, to, to you had to go, I'll, I, I, I do, I, I yeah. I this will be, be the last question. <laughs> so, you know, part of the sort of the thing that I'm looking at is sort of the, the, something that's been covered here quite a bit, this, this sense of the public versus private. You know, when do you, when do you mm -hmm. go public, when do you mm -hmm. go private? It's, you know, it's not necessarily a binary choice, mm -hmm. I, I think, but I've heard it described as, you know, what's not ready for commercialization mm -hmm. yet is therefore the domain of the government and therefore the domain of NASA. You know, the more we could get commercial entities to fund and what could be profitable for them, like services, like communication services, mm -hmm. power, um, you know, selling rovers, right, selling rover time, um, you know, there's all kinds of models you could think of. Yeah. Well, 
if you know we can give some of that over to them then we can focus our money on the technologies needed to go to mars or right. to saturn or to titan or <laughs> which is not commercially viable you know, yet right so right goes. so you know i think mars i've been in meetings where we've talked about eclipse model for mars and i just don't see it mm. as you know, or i don't see us being there in the next 20 years it remains to be seen if the lunar market is really going to materialize the way we hope, right? right. Um, we haven't landed the first thing yet with Eclipse Lander, and uh, so how is that just supposed to sort of like the, the more of a Chinese model that seems to be you know increasingly competitive but more centrally planned? Yeah, I don't think that's viable in our society. Um, you know, it's always a whole lot easier to to do something yourself or to do something with your you know closest neighbor than it is to collaborate with someone you know on the other side of the country but you get a much better product that latter way so um, I think you know through collaboration yeah through collaboration so I think all all indications are that's our direction and that's really collaboration with Beijing no increased collaboration with throughout our country Uh, you know so you know the Chinese government can probably dictate what they want to do and do it and only it and and force people to do that Um, we don't want to be in that kind of society I don't think and uh, um, you know as I said in my space technology charts you know we're here to um, enable uh, U.S. technological superiority and grow a, a technological innovative economy, mm-hmm. and that really raises the, the, you know, rising tide raises all boats. And so, you know, having that really technologically savvy um, economy uh, supported by workforce it really, um, you know, helps the whole country. I think. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you spending thank uh, 15 you. minutes with thank me. Thank you. Sorry it was so short. I no, have to um, I have to go do my sessions now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that does it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And just as a reminder, all of these conversations, or at least many of them, will be folded into a book project. So stay tuned for that. Subscribe to this podcast. I'm David Ariosto, and thanks so much for listening and and joining us and exploring this exciting next phase of where we're going.